Father, it is written in your word, if anyone speak, let him do so according to the oracles of God. If anyone do so, let him do so according to the strength that you supply. So now, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And may the zeal of the Lord of hosts perform all these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, and our only hope. Amen. Thank you for letting me come. John and Tara, it's been good to reconnect with you all again I want to begin with a question for us to think about. What's one of the worst things that can happen to you? No matter how old you are, whether you're a teenager, whether you're a grandparent, what is one of the worst things that can happen to you? Do you have something in your mind right now? If we had time, we could collect all of these answers, organize them by category, and see what kind of flow chart we'd have about the worst things that could happen to us. I want to add a category in your mind that you might not be thinking about this morning. What's one of the worst things that can happen to you? Here it is. You ready? One of the worst things that can happen to you is actually getting what you want. Getting what you want might be one of the worst things that could happen to you. Let's think about this for a moment as we set up our text. One psychologist at Nova Southeastern University explained it this way. And her practice. She says that when we think our lives will be better if we actually get what we want, we fail to consider the many implications that come with getting it. She then gives an example from her own clinical practice. I once worked with a client who spent most of her professional life focused on retirement. She wanted to get there so badly for so long, it shaped her life and influenced many of her choices. When we started working together, when she came to my office, it had been eight months since she retired. She was completely miserable. She explained to me that in all the years rushing toward retirement, she never considered what her life would be like once she actually got there. With tears flowing, she said about this about her experience. It never occurred to me that once I got to this point in my life, my parents would be dead. I'd be too tired to do the traveling I'd put off until now. And I wouldn't have any hobbies to keep my busy mind quiet. This is nothing at all like I thought it would be. And the therapist concludes, We can learn a great deal from the examples of people like my client who suffer as a result of getting what they wanted. If we aren't careful, getting what we want could be a recipe for disaster. If we aren't careful, getting what we want could be a recipe for disaster. You think that could be true of you this morning? What are things that we ask for? Again, still setting up our text before we come to the passage in the Bible. Let's just think of three broad categories that people often think about. How about wealth? Well, consider this. What often happens to people who win the lottery? They often end up broke, depressed, and suicidal. Time magazine ran an article with this title, how winning the lottery makes you miserable. One of their interviewees was Jack Whitaker. Jack Whitaker was already a millionaire when he won $315 million in the jackpot in West Virginia. Just four years later, he was being interviewed, and this is what he said. You know, my wife said she wished I'd torn the ticket up. Well, I wish I'd torn the ticket up too. I don't like the Jack Whitaker. I don't like the hard heart I have. I don't like what I've become. You know why? Because one of the worst things that could happen to you is actually getting what you want. We might ask for something else. How about a new relationship? A boyfriend or a girlfriend? Or maybe a different spouse? Problems would be different. Listen to a study from the National Center for Family and Marriage Research done at Bowling Green State University. Second marriages fail at higher rates than first. Second marriage divorce rates are as high as 67%, 74%, and third marriages. But I know it won't happen to us. You know why? Because one of the worst things that can happen to us is getting exactly what we want. 
here's the last thing to think about. Technology. I love technology. Not as much as you, I see. Always and forever, right? That's Kip. One of the greatest movies ever, Napoleon Dynamite. All right, never mind. We'll move on. We'll move on. All right. Technology. A phone. Social media. Followers on Instagram. But Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and he's not alone, says that depression and suicide rates are up 70% among teenage girls, 25% among boys since 2010. And while being careful not to argue that correlation equals causality, he does know one of the contributing factors does seem to be the arrival, the advent of iPhone and social media, Facebook, all of which came about the same time. And while phone usage and social media appear to be having harmful effects on teenagers, he notes, especially on girls in middle school, they're affecting adults negatively as well. We can't even sit through a sermon without the itch to check something. In a culture saturated with technological advances, social media platforms, all claiming to make us more connected, more united as a society and a world, and even happier, you can make the case the opposite has happened. Why? Because one of the worst things that can happen to you is getting exactly what you want. You know what's behind all of that? Friends, our lives, our loves are meant for something in this world but bigger than this world. Our lives are too broken. Our hearts are too needy for a like button on Facebook or for followers on Instagram to ever be able to satisfy us. It's like the bishop from North Africa said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That's our problem. All of this comes to bear in our text that we'll see in the Bible this morning. Would you please locate 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's a pew Bible around you. It's on page 215. 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. In a word... This book is all about leadership. In a phrase, it's all about leadership in dark times. The first seven chapters record a a human interest story. It's all about a barren woman named Hannah who's praying for a son. And Hannah's dark and barren life mirrors the dark and barren life of the nation of Israel at the time. And then God hears her prayer. And the son she gets is not only an answer to to prayer for her own needs, but it's an answer to prayer for the nation of Israel and what they need during this dark time. God provides Samuel at Hannah's request. And in providing for Hannah, he provides for a nation. That's how I describe chapters 1 to 7 leading up to our text. God provides Samuel at Hannah's request. If you read the first seven chapters, you get to watch Samuel grow up from life in the womb, his life in in, in Hannah's womb, which is always valuable and should be protected, to standing as a prophet and a priest and a judge. At the end of chapter 7, Samuel is standing as a mature man, a prophet, a priest over all of Israel and the entire nation for the first time in a long while is under his remarkable leadership. God was caring for his people and providing a leader. Indeed, Samuel is one of the greatest men in the Old Testament that that God gives to his people. Under his leadership, the land is at rest once again. The people are at rest. God's word is being taught by Samuel. The wars are over. God's people are being prayed for. And as chapter 7 ends in its ideal scene, God's people and God's land under God's care once again. What more could they need? It's just like you all have been seeing in, in Joshua, that God is a promise-keeping God. God's doing the same thing in the book of 1 Samuel. This is where chapter 8 comes in. We don't expect it. it represents, chapter 8 represents one of the greatest changes in Israel's history. It's hard to, to underestimate how significant this chapter is. It changes Israel politically and religiously and socially. It's it's when they move from a transition to largely individual 12 tribes and to kind of united kingdom, one united states. It's the day they ask for a king and change their government. Just imagine the upheaval 
I mean, Britain still can't figure out, are they for Brexit or against Brexit? This kind of national change and, and governmental structure has implications. This week is July 4th. Uh, the United States celebrates its independence, 1776. Well, 1 Samuel 8's a bit like that, only different. In 1776, America was declaring her independence from a king for the first time. And 1 Samuel 8, Israel's choosing a king for the first time. This is a big day in their history. Those choices are going to have generational effects on the nation. But what caused Israel to come to this point where they would demand a king? We want a change in how we're ruled. Well, let's read now 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 3, and see what led to this demand. This is what Holy Scripture says. And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the names of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, after gain. They took bribes and perverted judgment. They perverted justice. There's a lot of small white space between the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, but many years go by. Samuel has grown up from the first time we hear him speaking those words, here I am, here I am. And now in chapter 8, he's an old man. Thankfully, he's still the same person as he was when we first heard him say, here I am, here I am. You know, you can read, one way to read a book like Samuel is to indeed say, God, give us the ears of Samuel to hear your word. Give us the courage of Samuel to obey your word. Give us the compassion of Samuel to pray your word. He has two sons. The two sons, their names reflect Samuel's own love and devotion for the Lord. Joel means Jehovah is God. Abijah, God is Father. Oh, but friends, our hopes for our children don't always result in how our children turn out. Samuel walked in the ways of the Lord, but his sons did not. Uh, earlier in the, the account of Samuel, we're introduced to a figure named Eli, the high priest. His sons, the sons of the high priest functioning in the priestly line, they take, they steal the best portion of the sacrificial meat. They commit immorality in the place of worship. Samuel's sons take bribes and defraud people of justice. God takes immorality of any kind seriously. And God takes injustice of any kind. Seriously. Here are judges who should be impartial. They're to represent God, the just one, taking bribes and perverting justice. Eli's sons were greedy. They take the best meat. They hook up with women whenever they can, even in the temple. Samuel's sons are greedy as well. They take bribes. And they take bribes, and the result is this, they shut down due process. They shut down a fair hearing, a fair trial. One of the injustices at risk among any people is the failure of due process. Due process, a fair trial, a fair hearing exists because God exists. This is my first time here. I'm glad to be, but that means I don't know who's here. I don't know whether you're a Christian, whether you're struggling with your faith. But I want you to think about something. Maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe you're a teenager wrestling with the existence of God. I want you to do a thought experiment. Can we really say something like this? That's not fair in any meaningful sense unless God actually exists. I mean, if God doesn't exist, there's no right or wrong. There just is. We're just marching to the drumbeat of our own DNA. And it is true, the only law we obey is the powerful and the strong get to prey on the weak. And who are we to complain? That's just nature being nature. Only if there's a God in heaven should there be any due process or any cries of foul and that's not fair. And because God does exist, we should handle things justly. And friends, one day the books will be opened for all of us and God will not deal with us based on some kind of spurious accusation. The books will be opened and we'll be judged according to our deeds. 
And no one will leave God's courtroom and say that wasn't fair. If God is anything, he's just. If he's anything, he's holy. He will by no means clear the guilty, and that applies to you and me. Whether you're a mom or a banker, a grandparent or a grandchild, whatever you do, one day we will face the examination of God's justice. And everyone will say when it's done, just and true are your ways. Joel and Abijah sinned by their greed, and their greed caused them to pervert justice. They took bribes. It was an abomination to God. God hates when the guilty get away and when innocent people are falsely accused. Both are an abomination to Him. Think about something for a moment. Was Samuel at fault for the injustice of his sons? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. For starters, the narrator doesn't comment and tell us either way what's going on. But therein might be a clue, because when Eli sins earlier in the narrative in 1 Samuel 2-4, God confronts Eli directly. Indeed, the narrator has no problem pointing out Eli's failure. In fact, Eli dies in part because God judges him because he fails to restrain his sons. But in Samuel's case, neither God nor the narrator makes a comment on Samuel as a father, on his parenting. Further, the text seems to indicate that Samuel's sons acted this way as they entered adulthood, as they were out of the house. This is what the text says, they turned aside after gain, after they began as judges. They're living in the southernmost region of Israel, in Beersheba. So Samuel, in a sense, is up in Manhattan, in New York, and his sons as adults have jobs down in Orlando, Florida. So I'm not sure the injustice of, of Samuel's sons is his fault in the same way that it's the fault of Eli's. But what's the lesson here? One commentator puts it like this. With both Eli and now Samuel, it's obvious to everybody that great and good men can have evil, worthless sons too. What does that mean? It means for you still living in the house of mom and dad, the belief and faith of your parents is not enough for you. Their belief will not rescue you on the day that you draw your last breath. And there is no guarantee that you as a teenager will outlive your parents. You will be required to stand before God as well. You personally, all of us, need to see yourself as a sinner guilty before the God who loved us and made us. Someone who's disobeyed mom and dad. That Jesus is your only hope in life and death. Parents, we can't escape this from the story of Samuel. Sometimes the disobedience of our children reflects on our parenting. That was the case of Eli. But sometimes the disobedience of our children reflects the hardness of the sinful heart. So, Harvest... Pray for one another as parents. Pray for one another's children. Parents and children will give an account to God, and only God, by His Spirit, through the work of His Son, can save and preserve any of us. Well, the situation's not good. Samuel's old. His replacements, they're not doing well at all. What will the people do? Well, here the action starts to rise in the narrative. Let's read what happens next. Verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, the people certainly are just to bring the injustice to Samuel's attention. Criminal injustices should be reported and tried, not covered up and ignored. They're right to bring this to Samuel's attention. But is their solution just? Give us a king, they protest. 
Now again, this isn't a light request. This is requesting a revolution in the way that they're organized as a nation. And we know what a seismic request this actually is in the history of nations who changed their governmental structure. The question is, is this the right solution to a wrong situation? This happens in our day. An injustice comes to light. There are immediate demands that some kind of structural or mass change has to occur so that the injustice never happens again. It's certainly a righteous impulse. That's what happens here. But the question again, friends, is this. Is this a right solution to an unjust situation? We're going to think about that for a little bit. What indications do we have in this text? What's the reason they make the demand? Well, they tell us. Look at the end of verse 5. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Does that sound good? Put that musical chord, like all the nations, into the melodic line of the Bible. Readers of the story know in the Bible that God calls His people to be different from the nations around them. Not different in the sense of pleated pants and culottes, but, but different in how we treat one another and, and, and how we handle our possessions, how we treat God Himself. We're to show forth the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into light. His grace transforms every part of our life and our relationships. We're not to be like those around us. Thus, this response to a wrong situation sounds on the face of it like the old enemy of worldliness. And in particular, the pride of life. We want to be like everyone else. We're tired of being different. And whether you're You know, a third grader on the playground, a teenager at some school-sponsored activity, an adult at work or online, just admit it, no matter what age you are, we all struggle with peer pressure. The Bible calls it fear of man. We all just want to fit in. Oh, beloved, learn this lesson. Many temptations boil down to this, wanting to be liked or loved by someone other than God. That's the heart of much of our sin. I want to be liked and loved by somebody other than God. So this request doesn't sound good at all. Give us a king like the other nations. But now let's go back and and, and take this musical note again, this chord, and put it in the melodic Bible again and let's play it. We realize that their request is not the first time this chord has been introduced. We read, Pastor Walters read from Deuteronomy 17. God actually promises to his people, you're going to ask for a king. I will give you a king. The key line there is whom I choose. But he did promise to give them a king, Deuteronomy 17. Moreover, in the great promises God makes early on in the story, in Genesis, he actually says to Abraham, I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. Later, as Jacob lay dying, in his dying breath, he predicts, Genesis 49, the royal kingly scepter will not depart from Judah. So from the beginning, God makes a promise, I'm going to give you a king who I will choose. And, and moreover, and the book of the Judges, that's the historical backdrop for the opening chapters of Samuel. It sets the reader up. It sets the people up for the need for a king. What's the refrain in Judges as the story spirals to, to an awful end? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did right in his own eyes. The, the, the narrator setting, we need a different leader. So on the one hand, the request sounds quite worldly. Give us a king like all the other nations. On the other hand, God promises them a king. So we're back to our question. Is this a right demand to a wrong situation? Well, now I think we're at the high point of tension in the story. The tension is at the highest. What will Samuel do with this request? Let's read and see if the narrator gives us any help on the nature of this question, verses 6 to 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, 
hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken, obey their voice. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly, warn them, show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. This is the word of the Lord. Now let me ask you, based on this interaction, is their request a good one? Samuel's response gives us the first clue. The request displeased Samuel. I think we all tend to forget that the people in the Bible are actually humans with emotions who are affected by things. How would this have affected you? People you've loved and served? Maybe you've been a teacher, some kind of team leader. You've trained them, cared for them, seen them promoted, lots of success, and they reject you at the end of it all. How does it affect you when the children you love respond with ingratitude, a sneaky disobedience? They no longer want to be in the room with you anymore. Think about the kind of leader Samuel's been. He's an old man now, but think of his character, his love and care for these people over years. No scandal has ever been brought up about him. In fact, in the following chapter, Samuel says, tell me what I've done wrong that you reject him. And the people with one voice say, you have been blameless. You have done nothing wrong. You've served us well. His actions of chapter 7, giving the people God's word, praying for God to forgive their sins, praying for God to increase their faith, are indicative of the entire way that Samuel lived his life before these people. He's a loving, praying, self-sacrificing, bold, and courageous leader, and the people admit it. You see, that means that Samuel's not displeased. He's not arrogant because his ego needs stroking. He's displeased because the people that he's loved so well for so long now want nothing to do with him. And in a sense, his heart's broken as a leader. Do you think pastors can feel that way today? June 22nd, 1750, Jonathan Edwards had been serving in his church for 24 years, 21 years as senior pastor, and the congregation voted to dismiss him as their pastor. I know pastoral leaders can fail. Eli, in the own book of Samuel, that's the case in the story, and, and when they do, they should be called out and held accountable and dismissed if appropriate. But sometimes congregations fail to love and follow those who've led them so well, even if not perfectly. How are you following and loving the leaders in this congregation at Harvest? Here's a New Testament commentary on this text. Hebrews, obey your leaders and to submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, Harvest Bible Church, not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. My fellow elders, John, Josh, I don't know where you are, brother, the other fellow elders here. This text shows us, tells us to remember this, that ungratefulness or rejection by those we've cared for, ungratefulness and rejection by those we've cared for is not always an indication that we have failed. But it can be an indication of the hardness of the human heart. How does Samuel respond? How would you respond? Why, I ought to take you out. Call down fire from heaven? Samuel responds true to character. He prayed to the Lord. What a model Samuel is as a pastor, a parent, a leader at any level. Samuel's rejected and he prays. The point is not now that Samuel started to pray. But Samuel's whole life has been one of prayer. This is just what the man does. What a model he is. He's despised, and his first move is to pray. Does this scene remind you of anyone? Someone who serves people well only to be despised by those that he loves? Beloved, we need to read our Bibles with cross-shaped glasses on. 
Do you see a reminder of our great Christ and Samuel's rejection at this point? Jesus is the ultimate prophet who is despised and rejected. He comes into his own and they don't receive him. And he opens not his mouth. And when he finally does, his first words at the end of it all, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. J.C. Ryle said, it's worthy of remark that as soon as the blood of the great high priest began to flow on the cross, the great high priest began to intercede. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Beloved, if you listen long enough to Samuel's prayer when he's rejected, you will hear our great Savior praying when we rejected him. No wonder they call him the Savior. There's no one like him. Samuel's response is a model, and it's the first clue that Israel's request doesn't seem very good. But the real clue comes in God's reply, doesn't it? God tells us what's at the heart of their request. Did you see it? I'm sure you did. It's there in the text in the verse 7. For they have not rejected thee, but they've rejected me. What a dreadful scene. What a giant minor chord comes in at this point. Their rejection of Samuel is a sign of something rejecting something far worse. They're rejecting the love of God. Now, again, this isn't a one-off thing. You've got to put this in a whole flow, in a whole story. You have to remember the Bible's telling us a story. Here are two ways to hear the story of the Bible to this point in 1 Samuel 7. From one perspective, the Bible tells us that God is a husband. He rescues a woman, a woman who actually loved being on the streets, even though she's taken advantage of by many false lovers. God rescues this woman. He gladly takes her in. For the first time, she knows real love. He takes her to the wedding altar at Sinai where he makes his wedding vows, and he says, I will be your God and you will be mine. And now this is the God they want nothing to do with. Do you see the sadness? They want out of a marriage of redeeming love. That's the story of our lives too. God has been good to us in a thousand ways. And we won't love the one who first loved us. Seen another way, you can tell the story of the Bible. God is a king who rescues his people from an overlord. He redeems them from slavery, an Egyptian historical figure, Pharaoh. He leads them out with his mighty hand. And Joshua, you're seeing God drive out the nations with his mighty hand, with ease. He enters into a covenant with them as a king, promising them, pledging them his own protection. And now they want to get rid of the king of love. They want a new king, a different king. This is the day God's people filed for divorce. This is the day God's people rejected God. Friends, life comes down to all of us, comes down to all of us in one big fundamental question, whoever you are. Who will be king? It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian here this morning. Something or someone sits in your life as a king. It might even be a good thing that's now become a controlling thing in your life. Teenager, older person, middle-aged, church member, guest here this morning. How do you know who or what your king is? It might be your own self, your own perspective and outlook on life. Well, what makes you very, very sad? What makes you very, very happy? That's your king. That's one way to find it. At the bottom of all of our hearts is a desire to be king and to serve a king. What makes you really, really happy, really, really sad? That's your king. And then God adds in verse 8, From the day I married them, they've been like this. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day they've forsaken me, serving other gods. I mean, God, God even has the prophet Hosea marry Gomer as a picture of the type of spouse Israel has been. From the day I married you, you've been unfaithful to me. In other words, 1 Samuel 8 is not a bad day for Israel. This wasn't just a bad week of sales, and now God's being harsh with them. This is their bent. This is who they are. This is how they like to live. They don't like being faithful. 
They've been persistent in their sin, and from the day that he found them, God's been nothing but persistent in his grace and his love. Time after time they sin. Time after time he delivers them. And the circle starts again. And now God has given them one of the best leaders in Old Testament history, certainly the best judge, and they want somebody else? Oh, and more than that, God's just defeated the Philistines in chapter 7, and they want a different king to fight for them? This is the day God's people reject God as king. So now let me ask this again. Was this the right request? I think God's reply shows us there wasn't anything righteous about the request at all, and Israel knows it. They're using the sins of Samuel's sons as a cover to pursue their own ends. This is all smokescreen. They're virtue signaling. They're claiming to care about justice, to care about the steps of of church discipline in Matthew 18 to make sure that they're followed while they're pursuing their own sin. They're making out like they're the victims of the whole scenario. Thomas Brooks, they're painting vice with virtue's colors. But God sees through it all. They're rejecting me. Like they always have. What a tragic scene. God's people reject God. What's so wrong about the request? I mean, God did promise them a king. Well, here are three quick things to think about. One is their motive. We're seeing it. They're rejecting God. They want to be their own king. It's not like they want one of God's promises for themselves. Their own motive is they, we, want, we want a king for ourselves like we want to choose. The manner of their asking is wrong. They're not interested in doing God's will. They're interested in asserting their own. Their motive is wrong. Their manner is wrong. And the timing is all wrong. They want a king now. Give me a king now. You've seen the scene in uh, Red, Charlie and Chocolate Factory? That great theological tome. And there's the character of Aruka Salt. And what does she do every time you see her? Daddy, give it to me now. I want this now, Daddy. Now. Israel is being Veruca Salt. They're like a petulant Harry Potter demanding that Dumbledore tell him everything all at once at this very moment. It's Abraham and Sarah tired of waiting on God to keep his promise of a child, so we'll take matters in our own hands. Thank you very much, God. It's the prodigal son so full of himself demanding that his dad give me the inheritance now. Nothing about this request shows Israel's love for God or that they finally can't wait for God to keep his promise. It's all about themselves. They want to be served. God exists for them. The motive, the manner, the timing, it's all wrong. And sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is getting what we want. Beloved, learn to trace your sin back to a rejection of God and His love for you. I sin because I say God's love is not enough for me in this particular area. What does that look like in your life? How does God reply What would you expect God to say after he just found out the people no longer want me around? I think it's striking. God actually says twice, obey their voice. Beloved, sometimes God giving us what we want is an act of loving discipline. Think of that for a moment. Sometimes God giving us what we want is an act of loving discipline. Which means... Why do we usually think that if God doesn't give me what I ask, He must not be good? Learn to add another category to your thinking. What if God not giving us what we want is a sign that He actually loves us? I mean, if we show love to our, those that we care for by withholding things from them that we think are not best for them now, do you think that God is a wiser and more loving parent than we are? What if not giving us what we want is a sign of his love? Well, in this case, God gives them what they want. But even when he does, he's so kind and generous. He warns them a final time. He tells Samuel, warn them solemnly what the request will mean. 
We're going to read verses 10 to 18. I want you to to see what word you think stands out to you. Here's what they're concerned about. They come claiming, Joel and Abijah, they're taking bribes. They're taking bribes. They're taking bribes. We need somebody else. Let's listen to how God describes the king that they will get in verses 10 to 18. You tell me what word stands out. Chapter 8, verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that they asked him of a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties. And he will set them to ear his ground, to plow the ground, to reap his harvest, to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants, your maid servants, your goodliest young men, and he will take your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants." And you shall cry out on that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you that day. What's the big word in the text? Take. Take. Notice for the final time we're told what lay at the heart of their request. You will cry out for a king whom you have chosen for yourself. That's the exact opposite of the phrase in Deuteronomy 17. I will provide you a king whom I will choose for you. Did you notice the relentless love of God in all of this? And warning them about a king who will take, 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 take. He's trying to turn them one final time. He warns them, please don't go down this road. This is the voice of wisdom in Proverbs 8, crying in the streets, don't go this way. This is the warning of a brother and sister in Christ who's just asking, are you sure this is good for you in your life right now? It's the warning of a, the kind of thing a trainer does. You keep using that form and you're going to throw your back out. Behind God's warnings is always God's love. God's love lies behind His warnings. Have you learned to hear the voice of His love? And do you see how different then in, in time King Jesus is from the kind of king God describes here? Here is a king who's going to take and take and take and take. But Jesus came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. They want a king who will take. God sends a king who will give his life. Jesus is the king who, though he was in the form of God, he humbles himself all the way to the cross that we could be forgiven. The king whom we reject is the king who keeps running after us. Well, how do they respond to this loving and faithful warning? I mean, this should at least make them reconsider. Give me some time to think about this. A king who will take and take and take and take and take your sons, you hide your kids and hide your wife. They're going to take everything. Let's finish the account and see how they reply. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us, that we, will also, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice, obey them, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go every man into his city. Is there a sadder way for this chapter to end? God warns them about their request, but the people double down and refuse. No, give us a king. Ever the faithful prophet, Samuel gives them God's word, and God grants the request. And one of the worst things that can happen to us is getting exactly what we want. That plays out in Israel's history. I've been reading through Acts lately in my own Bible reading. I was struck once again in Acts 17 how Paul quotes those who are not Christians to make a, an elucidating point. 
I want to share with you some deep poetry from Metallica illustrating this point that one of the worst things that can happen to you is actually getting what you want. They have a song called King Nothing. Wish I may, wish I might have this I wish tonight. Are you satisfied? Dig for gold, dig for fame. You dig to make your name. Are you pacified? All the ones you waste, all the things you've chased, and it all crashes down, and you break your crown, and you point your finger, but there's no one around. Just want one thing, just to play the king. But the castle crumbled, and you've left with just a name. Where's your crown, King Nothing? Careful what you wish, careful what you say. Careful what you wish, you may regret it. Careful what you wish, you just might get it. And it all crashes down, and you break your crown, and you point your finger, but there's no one around. Where's your crown, King Nothing? That's Israel. Will it be you? Getting what we want could be the worst things that could happen to us. So be warned from this account, beloved. But don't despair. Why? Because God is at work even in our sinful choice to lead us back to him. Here's what I mean as, as 1 Samuel 8 comes to an end. Sometimes God gives us exactly what we want so that we will come to our senses and come back to him. Even in this act of granting their unrighteous request at this time, God is actually pursuing his people. God indeed is the prodigal God who shows so much grace of all kinds, even giving us what might be bad for us. Why? That we might come back to him. It's still an act of discipline that he gives him the request, but it's restorative and intent. Isn't that what the dad does in the story of the prodigal son? He gives his son what he asks for with the hope that one day he will come to his senses and come home. You see that God can make, can he, the wrath of man to praise his own ends? God may give you what you want and then withhold the ability to enjoy it so that you'll come back to him. Maybe that's you today. You're getting exactly what you want. You're where, you're where you are, want to be in life. But maybe you're seeing it's not satisfying. You know what that means? It means God's medicine is working on you. It's working. How? God can give us what we want and withhold the ability to enjoy it that we'd come back to him. George Herbert was an Anglican minister who wrote lots of poetry one of my favorite is the pulley where he describes God creating human beings, giving them everything but one thing, rest. And because he withholds rest, he hopes they'll come back to him. Here's Herbert's poem. When God first made a man having a, a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract here into a span. So strength first made way, and then beauty flowed, and then wisdom, and honor, and pleasure. And when almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasures, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature. So both should losers be. So let him, let him keep the rest but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary. Then at least, if goodness lead him not, weariness may toss him to my breast. Sometimes the worst thing can happen is getting what we want. But God, in his wise grace, sometimes the best thing that happens is getting what we want to become the king of nothing that we might return to the king of love the author, redeemer of our souls. Now, this sad, this sad chapter points to a sad chapter in the Bible. One day, another prophet full of love and courage stood before his own people, a better prophet than Samuel, far better than Samuel. Over his life hung these words, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They all knew he was righteous and innocent that day, just like they did with Samuel. And there stands Jesus in Pilate's hall. Do you see him there? 
You see Jesus in Pilate's hall, delivered there by the people he came to serve. Listen to Pilate. This man's done nothing wrong. I will give you Barabbas, he pleads. No, we want this king. Give us justice. But I have found nothing wrong with him, Pilate pleads again. I find no fault in him. But just like in 1 Samuel 8, the people double down. The crowd shouts, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, the text records, Pilate says. We have no king but Caesar. The repeated rejections of 1 Samuel 8 anticipated the dreaded day when those whom Jesus loved forsook him, fled, called for his death. 1 Samuel 8 points to Christ, the rejected king, rejected by you and me. And here's the question. Are you rejecting this king? This king of love? The one who made you. God made you, and you owe him your life. The bad news is we've rebelled and gone our own way and wanted to be our own kings. But God in love sends his son to pursue us. And Jesus, the king, hangs on a cross, spread eagle on a Roman cross, that all the sins of all those who had ever trusted him might be punished. And on the third day, he rises from the dead, that you might be forgiven. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay, yet cheerful he to suffering goes, that he from thence might free his foes. Even in his death, he was dying for our rejection of him. He died that we might live. Was ever a king like this? Has anyone ever loved you like this? You know that old hymn, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. No one. No one loved you so completely. The day God's people rejected God's Son at the cross was the very day God's Son died for His people at the cross. While we were sinners, He died for us. Do you see how He loves you? Do you see how the Lord Jesus loves you? Only fear the Lord and serve Him with all your heart. For consider what great things He's done for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord.